In the well-known Disney movie franchise, the daring and devious Captain Jack Sparrow is not just any old pirate, but specifically a pirate of the Caribbean. But what was striking to a lot of people when they heard that title was not just Captain Jack's lack of manners, but also that the Disneyified pronunciation was a bit different than the one many English speakers use, which is Caribbean. So, who's right? Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. Stick around, because after we engage in some pirate-adjacent fun, we're going to talk about tricky problems that come up when you're writing about math. Back to the Caribbean. It turns out most dictionaries list both pronunciations, Caribbean and Caribbean, and say both are widely accepted. But this is a situation where looking back at the origin of the word itself can help tease out how it was originally pronounced. And if we go back a few centuries, it can help reveal if Disney got it right. The story of the Caribbean islands goes back centuries, when they were inhabited by a number of different indigenous peoples who had settled the islands, likely having come from South America. When Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, he happened upon these islands and some of their inhabitants and spent time particularly in the company of one of these indigenous tribes, the Arawak. He tried to communicate using gestures smattered in with a bit of their language, Taino, a language now extinct but from which English owes a great debt for many borrowed words, including maize, canoe, and tobacco. According to Columbus, the Arawak conveyed to him, mostly through gestures and facial expressions, that there was a hostile tribe called the Carib, who inhabited other islands nearby. And Columbus wrote back to Spain, recounting his experiences with both the Arawak and the Carib. Now, Carib was not what the members of this tribe originally called themselves, but it seems to have come from Columbus's European-filtered understanding of their Arawakan name Kalino, or Carina, translated into something close to brave warrior. Thus, the word Carib became the root for the word Caribbean, meaning of the Carib, which suggests the original pronunciation was Caribbean, just like Disney's movie. These island Caribs, as they came to be known, were a fierce warrior tribe, and they powerfully resisted Spanish excursions onto their lands, which earned them a reputation among the Europeans as savages, and seems to also have been the origin of not just Caribbean, but also the word cannibal. Cannibal derived from a Spanish derivative of the name of the tribe, cannibales, which the Spanish claimed meant flesh-eaters. Whether the tribe was in fact cannibalistic is hotly debated, since though a few historical accounts claim to have witnessed it, it's more likely that the Spanish made it up to justify enslaving them, since legal statutes at that time specified that only cannibalistic native populations could be enslaved. Since the Lesser Antilles were rumored to be flush with gold, which Spain most certainly wanted, such propaganda to support the subjugation of the native population was useful. As a result, over time, most of the Kalino ended up being killed or fleeing, and the tribe was essentially decimated. 
Though today, even those native to the islands pronounce the name a number of different ways, the pronunciation that most recognizes the early indigenous population from where the name derived is Caribbean. The origin of the name isn't the only interesting linguistic story these islands hold either, because a century so after Columbus, a number of 16th and 17th century European explorers also spent time with the Arawak as missionaries. Now, these early European missionaries wrote of discovering a most unusual gender situation on the islands, which is that the men spoke island Carib, in other words, the language of the Carib, also known as Karina, while the women spoke Arawakan Taino. In other words, it appeared to them that the men and women spoke completely different languages, and this is the only instance ever reported of such an extreme situation. Now, these reports also give a fascinating explanation for this difference. The Arawaks told the missionaries that this linguistic difference came about because centuries before, Carib warriors had invaded the Arawakan islands, killing the men and enslaving the Arawak women as wives. Thus, the language difference was related to this forced intermarriage early in the tribe's history, since the men spoke the Karina language and the women they took as wives spoke Tiano. But over time, the men did adopt a bit of Arawak mixed in with their native language. For example, when saying come and go, a man would say, and forgive my pronunciations, Nabuai Atina Tibonum while a woman would say, Chile Atina Tone. You can see how it's a blend, especially when looking at the words written out in the transcript or on the YouTube video. The root words are different for the male and female versions. The men's language has carib roots, Nabui and Ibonum, and the women's language has Arawakan roots, Chile and One. But both forms have the same suffixes and prefixes, Atina, Nabuiatina, and Chileatina, and T, Tibonum, and Tone. Today, researchers think that the majority of the language spoken by men and women was actually the same, and that the missionaries might have exaggerated or misunderstood the differences a bit. Unfortunately, since island Carib and Taino are no longer spoken today, we can't know for sure how accurate these accounts are or how much of the origin story recounted to the missionaries by the Arawaks is true. But what this story can remind us of is how much culture and history we lose when languages go extinct, something currently happening on a mass scale, with 40% of languages still spoken today in danger of disappearing. That segment was written by Valerie Friedland, a professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada in Reno and the author of Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. You can find her at ValerieFriedland.com. Here's a question from a listener. Hi, Barma Girl. Um, I'm a physics postdoc and I have been wondering this question um, for like years. So we have this long equation that spans more than a line, and it's really hard to organize such equations. Is there a manual that um, tells us how these equations can be organized? And also another quick question is, um, 
uh, if I need to write, for example, by default, n equals one, should I write by default n and the word equals one? Or should I write um, by default n using the equal sign equals one? Thank you. Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. So I was catching up on listening to voicemails while I was having breakfast with my husband. And when I heard this message, I jumped up and ran to my office and he started laughing. But I knew I had a reference book that would answer this question and I just couldn't wait to get to it. I've gathered probably 200 books on English over the years, and most of them just sit there like an abandoned toy waiting to be used. And this week, it was Scientific Style and Format's turn. This is a style guide put out by the Council of Science Editors, and it's probably been 10 years since I've needed it. And now the pages of this happy little book get to breathe again and tell us about equations. It says you should try to break the equation after an operator because that helps the reader realize that something more is coming. In other words, break it after an equal sign, plus or minus sign, or a multiplication or division symbol, in that preferred order, actually. It also says not to do a line break in the middle of a fence, which means don't break up a set of numbers that need to be considered together, like numbers together inside parentheses or brackets. Interestingly, the book also recommends trying as much as possible to keep equations limited to a single vertical line of text to keep the spacing looking standard. For example, it says if you're showing that A is divided by B, it's better to write A slash B than to write them stacked as A over B. As for whether to use the equal symbol or the word equals, I'd use the symbol It's what I'm used to seeing from my days as a technical writer. It's also what you see in journal articles about drug studies, for example. I couldn't find an entry on that specific question in scientific style and format, but it's how it's written a couple of times in the text in the book. Finally, I have two caveats. First, it says that when an equation spans more than one line, knowing where to put the line break requires, quote, knowledge of mathematics, unquote, which I interpret to mean if our rules don't make sense in your case, don't follow them. And second, I think it's important to point out that if you're trying to publish a research paper, you should always check what the style is of your target publication because lots of journals have their own rules, or at least they might say which style guide they want you to follow. So don't assume they'll all use the general style I just told you. I actually double-checked what I told you here, too, against the much more detailed online style guide from the American Mathematical Society, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and it generally concurred. Amazingly, when I tried to search for something about the equal sign, I found that the word equals doesn't appear once in the entire 160-page document. It does say, though, that you shouldn't use the mathematical symbols for there exists and for all in text. Those are just for equations. Thank you so much for the question. I and my scientific style and format book, thank you. Finally, I have a Familect story from Amy. Hey, this is Amy, and I wanted to share a story of our Familect. When my kids were little and they would be 
doing something really cute, you know, snuggling with each other, I would say something like, oh, you know, they're loving each other or, you know, something like that. Well, one day when my three-year-old was hugging her one-year-old brother and she said, look, mom, we're loving each other. And it was years before I told her that other was not a word, but we will still, they are, they're 22 and 24. And to this day, when they're being sweet, um, we'll refer to them as, you know, loving their other. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. I loved that we didn't have anything like this in my family, but it reminded me of the kind of story that could have happened in my family and that my mom would have loved as much as you do. If you want to share the story of your family act, a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 83321-4GIRL. It's in the show notes, and be sure to tell me the story behind your family act, because that's always the best part. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to our audio engineer, Nathan Sims, and our director of podcasts, Adam Cecil. Thanks also to our ad operations specialist, Morgan Christensen, our marketing associate, Davina Tomlin, and our digital operations specialist, Holly Hutchings, who absolutely loves roller skating. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. 